Hi, and thanks for joining us on Welcome. This is episode 14, and uh, today's episode we have a return guest, uh, Mark Farmer, who was uh, our guest on episode 2, is back in the Welcome studio at uh, here at Girth Radio in the Pacific Junction Hotel, and we talk all things social, so uh, hope you enjoy the show. Live from Pacific Junction Hotel, Girth Radio in session. Did you come from York straight away, or no, no, no? I went. I went to a doctor's appointment and then went upstairs because I just live over like up there. here. Well, the uh, condo is right on the corner. Oh, and I'm on the twelfth. Oh, yeah, so, so. You went to your upstairs. Yeah, <laughs> there's there's several levels of this bar. It's multifaceted. Uh, no, I live on the corner, so I just went upstairs to the uh, condo and uh, dropped some stuff off and came down. Nice. Yeah. You're, it's been a while since we chatted. I, I think you were on episode. Two? I should know this, but you were early on. I was on episode early. You were episode early. Um, are you were at York University? You still at York? Mm-hmm. You haven't graduated yet. Uh, in the <laughs> loose sense of the word, no, no, still there. Coming up on three years. Yeah. Um, what What are you doing there now? That's different than because I was there. I think in your first year. I came by to a little talk. You did, yeah. So that was my first year there. Yeah. What are you doing now that's that's different than uh, than what you started off doing? One cool thing, well, I mean, just in terms of channels, because what I do with social media is um, some stuff like Periscope. So I just did a Periscope of the studio before I came by. And um, doing that, Meerkat, another live broadsca- broadcasting thing. Yeah. Um, we've gotten more into Instagram, way more since you were there. Uh, done social media projection, live at events, which is kind of cool. Okay. Um, now, those are sort of these Twitter walls. Yeah. Type so, things. convocation is like sixty-one hundred kids, kids, people crossing the stage, and we were like, okay, there's a lot of people waiting with nothing better to do necessarily. How can we leverage that? How can we use that? And so we uh, said, uh, you know, put your tweets up or Instagrams with your Q Convo, and we'll put the best ones up on the screens. So there's three huge screens in the convocation area, and you get to see yourself like 12 by 8. or you, The big one is even bigger than that. And so it was this tremendous opportunity for people to see themselves, you know, for parents to congratulate kids, friends to congratulate friends, and it took off. Nice. So we got some really good traction. We're going to submit it for an award. Oh, cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, let's let's start off with 
uh, chatting about a couple of timely things. Uh, Toronto is uh, experiencing something that it hasn't uh, since since 1993, and uh, that is participating uh, in baseball. <coughs> baseball. Yeah. You, know, you, uh, you choked on that a bit, actually. I noticed. Yes, the word choke, we'll, we'll bring that up. Okay. A bit later. <laughs> but um, the Blue Jays are playing postseason baseball, mm-hmm. um, and we haven't since uh, Joe Carter uh, hit oh, that man, famous yeah. home run. Um, Take me back. Yeah. Now, I know you're not a huge baseball fan, yeah, or you don't follow it. I follow it peripherally, and yeah. I'd be lying if I said I was the world's biggest fan. But what are your thoughts? We're now, oh, so we're recording this on Friday after a 14 inning game. And the Jays lost in 14 innings, 6-4. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on, on baseball as a whole in Toronto these days? It's interesting because after a 22-year drought, suddenly people care. So if you're walking around downtown Toronto now, apparently everyone has gone to the swag shop and bought uh, a cap or a jersey, regardless of whether they cared about the team at all, you know, six months ago. Yeah. So one part of me is like, wow, you're incredibly fickle, Toronto. Another part of me is go Toronto. Finally, you got excited about something and got behind a team, which is good. So I'm not going to dump on it. Yeah, uh, it's heartening. I'm glad to see that people actually have started to come and support sports. Yeah, it's a sport exciting. That isn't the Leafs. Yeah, and the Leafs are starting, so we we better we want to enjoy the sort of feeling. Well, the Leafs have got what a five year rebuild. I mean, it takes longer to refurbish an aircraft carrier than it will be the Leafs. So we got to get <laughs> something in the meantime. Yeah. Nice, and we're also um, so we'll put put the Jays to bed. We just hope that on uh, Thanksgiving Eve on Sunday that uh, we we have some better news to talk about the Jays. But no. I have uh, you know whether they make it to the next round, the American League Championships or not. Um, I think they've had a great year. Oh yeah, um, yeah. they had an amazing second half of the season. Uh, they had a year that's been fantastic. Alex Anthopoulos has done some. Uh, amazing trades. Uh, I, I would even um, argue that uh, the trades he made uh, a few years ago um, to get R.A. Dickey and to get Mark Burley uh, were important as well because both of those pitchers um, were were key to where Toronto has ended up so far. Um, but hopefully we'll have better news to talk about. Um, and, and hopefully um, in 10 plus days we'll have better news to talk about. Uh, in terms of Canada, mm-hmm. we uh, are, are <laughs> don't, ten. Don't tip your hand politically it, too much there, Chris. Is it nine or ten days uh, until the next? It's around there. It's ten, I think, in the 19th. Yeah, ten days. Uh, so we've got ten days until uh, the election, and I know a lot of people are voting this weekend, which uh, were uh, a lot of the advanced polls uh, are open. Wow. there's there's uh, Most of this has been... Most of this election, I, I would argue, has, t- has taken place or the conversations have taken place either in the media mm-hmm. um, or on social media. Um, and the reason being is that nothing has sort of taken place in – the debates that have happened have been in, in sort of niche channels, online channels that nobody watches um, or you have to register for a certain place to watch it. You know, There was not that consortium. Uh, debate where you know the whole country can sort of watch and participate in. Um, so it's been very interesting. Um, I've heard more uh, ads uh, from Stephen Harper uh, than any other uh, party, you know, than all the other mm-hmm. parties combined. Um, and I know you're very opinionated. Um, uh, 
your thoughts on sort of what's mm. been going on and you know where you hope Canada ends up in 10 days. A lot of interesting stuff going on there. <laughs> a lot of uh, a lot of ripe pickings. One of the interesting interesting things that happened to me is because I'm Mr. Social Media Wonk is seeing ads for the Conservatives pop up in my Facebook. Yes. And I'm actually, full disclosure, not a Conservative Party supporter. So this is interesting to me because somebody somewhere spent some ad money and decided to target, uh, you know, single white males in a relationship uh, 40 to 45 in Toronto, I guess, or did some other kind of demography and came up with me. And what makes it more interesting is uh, Facebook ads are basically a piece of content. So you can comment on it, just like you comment on your friend's posts and the posts you saw from Staples or Microsoft or Best Buy. You can comment on an ad. Yeah. And, of course, I took that opportunity. Not necessarily good comments. uh, Not bad. Not distasteful, but, you know, uh, airing my opinion. And I do not know if the people that placed this ad realized that you can do that. Because when I went back and looked at the comment stream, it was all slamming the Conservative Party. Mm -hmm. Which leads me to believe that the person who's responsible for social media ads for the Conservative Party may actually be an 18-year-old. Or or possibly 19. Because otherwise... Stephen Harper's son, maybe. I'm guessing, or like a blood relative. Why would you do that? Why would you create a piece of content that's going to go live in front of millions of people and basically give them a great big whiteboard and a pen and say, go ahead, criticize us? That's a bit of a misstep on their part. And uh, the funny thing was it kept happening. So I saw one ad, uh, do you trust uh, Trudeau? I saw another one, which is do you think that uh, people should be allowed to wear a niqab when they're you know, getting their passport that photo was an done? Ad? Uh, not in those words, but you would think it was, you know, should people identify? Is it a shame if they don't identify themselves in public ceremonies? And I was like, okay, it's a veiled way of saying don't wear things that, you know, Stephen Harper doesn't like. So yeah. these things kept coming in. I thought, this is interesting. They're, they're either not watching their own ads. So you've been retargeted because you participated in, I've in been retargeted. number one. So you got retargeted yeah. for another ad. So for everybody that doesn't know what retargeting is, basically it's when someone clicks on your ad and they don't make a purchase. Like, you know, you see the Best Buy ad for the, the new phone, um, but you didn't buy it or you, maybe you did buy it. They'll keep showing you ads for the phone. Best Buy knows, oh, okay, this person showed interest. We're going to put them in our database and show them more ads. So similarly, with the conservatives, apparently, I clicked on an ad and left a comment, and the conservative machine, the sophisticated uh, political machine, said, wow, a supporter. (laughs) Let's show him more ads. And so they kept showing more ads, and I kept leaving, you know, kind of challenging comments, and I don't think anybody has looked at those comments yet. So... It's, it's yeah, I don't think they're interested in that. They probably want you to click the ad itself and kind of see where it ends up. So I saw an ad uh, for the Conservative Party, and I was like, "What the heck is this?" I was like, I was actually shocked that that I saw one. I've seen a lot of um, uh, a, a lot of Trudeau stuff on Twitter. Um, he sponsors. He's 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 has done a lot of. Um, um, Sponsored ads around, you know, uh, hashtag election 42? Uh, probably. Um, but so I clicked on the conservative ad because so it was a yes or no. And I think it was a question about should Canada spend money on military 
or defending ourselves or something along mm-hmm. those lines. So there was actually on the ad a yes sir or no. Right. Yep. So I actually clicked over no just to see <laughs> what would happen. And it just went what to happened, the, Kareem? It went to conservatives.ca or whatever it is, yeah. slash military or whatever. Um, and it wasn't no, you don't agree, why not? It was like it was the same place if I clicked yes. Yeah. Um which so. is the lowest common denominator of, of ad idiocy. Yeah. And it's kind of like when you're on, uh, I don't know, like a BuzzFeed type site or something, and you see a banner ad that's like flashing and it's got like 20 million colors, and its only purpose is to get you to click. And so, of course, you click, but it's not like you did anything or actually like it's our product or, you know, are a, an advocate for them. It's just, we'll do anything to get you to click. Yeah. Similar sort of thing. I think the scary thing is, is because the conservatives um, have the most money, that they will be able to get their message out more, and the people who you know don't read, don't participate, um, who still have a right to vote, um, will sort of hear their message, and you know, he's always on CBC. His advertising is always on CBC Radio. Um, and, you know, hi, this is Stephen Harper. We are 10 days away uh, from the election. I'm concerned about whatever, jobs, the economy. Um, and then, and then he, he says, I'll talk to you tomorrow. I go, no, I don't want to hear. <laughs> but you know he you, will. You again. And then my wife is, is obviously in the same room, and, you know, she starts yelling at the radio station. <laughs> and it's like, oh, my God, it's, it's, it's crazy. And, and so there are people that will hear this. Um, and will will say, yeah, I do want you know my country protected. I do want someone to make sure that I've got a job. I do want someone who'll you know uh, give me more and and not take my taxes. Um, and sort of the, the sort of political you know talking points mm-hmm. um, that don't mean anything uh, and probably are not in in his plans. And, and they'll get votes, unfortunately. It's just weird that he's taken a page from Upworthy and BuzzFeed's playbook and done linkbait, clickbait, because I don't see what the benefit is to him. It's strange. And another thing you mentioned, too, was the fact that they got the world's longest or Canada's longest election campaign. World's longest or in the U.S., but Canada's longest election campaign. And the reason for that, that I've been told, and I believe it, is that the conservative fundraising machine is the most well-oiled of the three, and they stood to benefit the most from having a long campaign where they could top up their coffers and spend more on advertising. So Yeah, it, the longer a campaign, I, I think the more money you're allowed Or the more money you're allowed to spend, and to also they and were spend, the yeah. party that had the most capacity for fundraising. Yeah. So it clearly played into their interests. Um, unfortunately, we've got, like, what, a 42 day long campaign or some some for Canadian standards very long and probably you know I'm I like a lot of Canadians are getting tired of it and I'd rather went back to the old days of let's call an election and then two weeks later I get get it done and put it to bed what do you, what are your thoughts on and we're going to get to social media <laughs> okay. but but what what are your thoughts on uh strategic voting <laughs> if there was a website I don't think it exists where you could actually predict what your strategic voting would do and it wasn't co-opted in some way. So, for example, if you had a website where you had a unique identifier so that only one person could cast a vote at a time, you know, you couldn't load it up with votes, that might make sense. Because then you could see, oh, okay, yeah, you know, we've all agreed to vote liberal, and it looks like the liberal candidate's going to win. 
as opposed to, you know, trust me, hold your breath, uh, pinch your nose, close your eyes, and let's all vote strategically. Because what ends up happening in that case is that everyone votes for the party that they think is going to get in and actually doesn't. This actually happened to me because I used to be, um, very briefly, a campaigner for the Greens. And I went around one time, door to door, knocking, trying to raise support, and that was interesting. That's all like a whole evening's conversation. You you were a candidate? I was a canvasser. Okay. Yeah, going door to door. Almost was a candidate, but backed out. Uh, but I went door to door, and some people said, you know what? I'm not voting green. I'm voting strategically. I'm going to vote for the Liberals. I swear to God, you know, like a block away, yeah, I'm voting strategically. I'm going to vote for the NDP. And again, you know, another few minutes, I'm going to vote strategically. I'm voting conservative. <laughs> so it doesn't work quite the way you think it does. If everyone was able to organize, uh, that'd be great. I haven't seen the mechanism by which that happens yet. If anyone does know the mechanism by which that happens, tweet me, Marcus64. So, and I think I remember reading somewhere, and I don't know if it was on Canada Land or uh, McLean's or some. No, it wasn't Canada Land, but it was another one of these independent. Uh, Canadian media organizations. Um, and so this gentleman, his idea was get together with a small group of people in your community. And that group puts together, I think it's like a thousand or two thousand dollars. And apparently you can go to a polling company and say, we're going to, we're paying you two thousand dollars or whatever, whatever that fee is. We want you to, um, to poll our poll, to poll our writing, um, and so that, and I don't know how the, a question would be phrased, so that they would know. Okay, should us citizens who are concerned about another uh, conservative, uh, Harper-led conservative government, which party should we vote for in our writing to ensure that the Harper government doesn't win that seat? Or, or the Conservative Party doesn't win that seat. So, so there is an actual methodical way of doing that. Um, well, I'm sure there's... I have no yeah. doubt there's a way to game the system, and I just would like to see it put up online somewhere so everyone can participate. In yeah, it. and then there was a, someone else uh, on Medium actually identified, it might have been a dozen writings across Canada, uh, that theoretically, if the Conservatives lost all of those writings but they strategically went to either liberal or democrat that it would mean that the conservatives wouldn't win uh, a majority or even a, a minority um but they had they had to go specifically liberal they couldn't swing either way mm. they had to go to a specific party uh to to ensure that so that i saw in medium and both of these i i, I sort of found through uh, this last one i found through facebook the other one was sort of a suggested article um through my android phone um, the one criticism I've heard is that it's anti-democratic, and I sort of understand why. voting? Yeah, because it sort of says, well, throw out your inclination and your democratic, you know, uh, in, um, vibe, and just vote, throw away your vote, essentially. It's not quite spoiling it, but don't vote with what you think is the best party. Vote with the one that you think is going to be the most disruptive. I, I don't know that I agree, but I can understand why some people might say, well, that's non-democratic, maybe, as opposed to anti-democratic. I, I don't know if it's either one of those. I think it's 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 interesting because of, of the Canadian parliamentary system um, and that we have multiple parties um, and that, you know, a 
any of these parties can be can form the government, um, or a combination of these parties can get together uh, and form the government. Um, and you know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is what we have. Um, and so if there is, it's sort of saying, I'm not sure really what I want, but I know what I don't want, right? So I know that I know what I don't want, and I and I don't want the the Harper. I don't want another Harper government, minority or otherwise, because. Even when they had a minority government, he, he was still able to sort of um, do things, as, you know, with with he was still able to push through legislation uh, as if he had a majority government. Because at the time, the liberals and the NDP did not want to cooperate, you know, they, you know, and, and so I think it is still, quote unquote, democratic to vote for someone you don't want hmm. um, because, you know, all things being equal. Um, I would vote in my writing for the NDP candidate for no other reason, and I've met both the NDP and the Liberal candidates uh, in my writing, but for no other reason than I wasn't appreciative of Justin Trudeau not um, not voting against uh, Bill C-51? Mm-hmm. Bill C-51. Mm-hmm. The spying bill, yeah. Yeah, and um, even though He's on record, and the liberal candidate in our writing is on record as saying that it needs to change. Um, it's it's too strong. Um, you know, there's already sort of rules in place. Um, you know, so you know, my wife and I both said, you know what, we need to make sure that the conservative candidate in our writing, um, who has, who who is our MP, does not get voted in again. Mm. Um, you know, so we're voting strategically. Well, that's one of the things that the Green Party has touted for a long time is that proportional representation system that they have yeah, yeah. in a lot of European countries where it's not first past the post like Canada where winner takes all or in a minority government most. You get the number of seats that reflect the percentage of votes. So if you get 5% of the vote, you might not even get an MP, but in proportional representation, you would get some seats. Yeah, uh, it's a lot more civilized. It makes sense, and it doesn't make sense for a government that was voted in by thirty-one percent of the Canadian population. So, in other words, almost seventy percent said anyone but them yeah. to become the government. It, it really doesn't make sense. No, absolutely, totally agree with you. Um, but then again, if we were to, if I were to vote green, would I be would I be would I be voting? Unfortunately, for. Well, I'm not going to weigh in on that, you know, but vote with your conscience. Yeah. I, that's my best advice. Until we get a really rigorous way to do strategic voting where there's some guarantee that it's not f- fixed or gameable, I'd say vote with your conscience. So let's get to uh, to talking social media. You've you've It's sort of been in both of our professional lives mm-hmm. uh, for a number of years. Um at York University, you you earlier mentioned that you've been doing more stuff with Periscope and Meerkat, mm-hmm. which is interesting because you said on our last show that Meerkat was dead, but we'll leave that. <laughs> um, I may have and, misspoke. And also with um, uh, doing some more stuff with Instagram and um, things of that nature. What's what is the role, or maybe the the answer is roles, but what is the role of social media? At York. Well, what I want to do is to be able to capture eyeballs and engage with people in a meaningful way. It's easy to use social media as just a megaphone. You know, it's just it's easy to use it as just another 
marketing channel and you throw information at people and messages and hope some of it sticks. But it's more important to move beyond that. So that's why we try to stay ahead of some of the channels that uh, the 18 to 24 demographic is using. So that's why we're just in things like Snapchat, Periscope, Meerkat, Instagram, um, used to be Vine. And try to figure out what works because, quite frankly, these channels pop up. You know, there's something that will be the flavor of the month next month and might disappear. So, for example, you know, rewind a year ago on Vine, which is a short video format for Twitter. Mm -hmm. It's getting a lot of attention. People are like, wow, this is really crazy. It could take off. It's a really quick and easy way to take a video and share it with all your friends because it's going through Twitter. And it it works. It's useful. It didn't take off the way Instagram does. Uh, Instagram recently overtook Twitter as basically the second most popular social medium on Earth, which is saying a lot. And it also should probably put some fear in people because Zuckerberg owns both of them, so he's just expanding his empire. But he's okay. Um, so with these things, we're just trying to figure out like what works, what works now, and what what do we go with? So something like Vine, you know, it had its time. Uh, it was a bit of a flash in the pan. Still some use. We use it peripherally. Instagram, hugely popular. It's got legs. It's going to last for a long time. So we're invested in that. Things like Periscope and Meerkat, these live streaming apps that go through Twitter, they're interesting. They still haven't got the audience yet. But there's some application there. And it's interesting because just going to an event, mentioning you're going to be there, holding up a camera, pressing go on Periscope and like waving it around, you can, you can get people paying attention to you for no other reason. Because like, they're interested in the medium. It's new. It's kind of cool. It's kind of hip. Want to want to engage with it a little bit. We'll see if it's six months or a year from now, it's actually got real legs and real application. But that's kind of what I want to do. Is I want to try new things, see what works, do more of that, do less of what doesn't. Simple math. What... Um What's considered, like, what works? Like, at the end of a campaign or at the end of a day or at the end of a month or a year, um, looking back, what do you say, okay, this worked and this doesn't, and why would something work? Like, what's the definition of that? Like, what are the metrics of something that has worked? Yeah, so, for example, we had, I mentioned earlier, that thing we did with Convocation where we had recognized that there were a whole bunch of uh, graduates waiting to take the stage, uh, didn't necessarily have anything better to do necessarily. You know, a lot of them were on their phones, checking email, uh, contacting friends. And we thought, okay, so how can we leverage this? You know, thousands of idle thumbs. So we encouraged them to tweet Instagram, and we showed their images on the screen. So it's only like that. We got millions of potential viewers. We've got, we got thousands of pieces of content created. So those are two very impactful measures. You know, you want to be able to reach people, and that's potential views or viewers. Mm-hmm. And then you want people to start to talk about you, right? Because it's one thing if, you know, York University or U of T or Microsoft or Best Buy says, we're great, pay attention to us. It's another thing if 6,000 people that aren't being paid by Microsoft or the eBay or us or whoever say the same thing, not in so many words. So obviously those are the people that you want to connect with. Those are the people that you want to be saying good things about you because it's third-party validation. Mm-hmm. not being paid to, so people will pay more attention to them. Mm-hmm. That's what we're hoping for. Interesting. What other sort of campaigns have you guys run there that has been looked at as, okay, this has been successful? So we do a big campaign every, every year, and for three years it was This Is My Time, and this year uh, it's This Is York, and... When we haven't got any numbers for it yet, but we won an award for the last one. Not that awards are the most important thing in the world. The most important thing is your top level metrics, but it's an indicator you're doing the right thing. 
So we're going to see in a few months what the numbers are for that, and hopefully that's going to have taken off for us. But that's basically trying to get the message out that you know we're an interesting, dynamic institution. You should come and take a look at us, potentially, for your education. Here's why. Here's the things we're doing. And in this case, you know, a really interesting visual manner, because I think that's becoming more and more evident to everybody, is that uh, social media is becoming a visual medium more than anything. I mean, there's still a place for bloggers. There's still a place for... Um, you know, WordPress, things like that. But more and more, it's becoming a whole visual vocabulary. I mean, I, I used that word a long time ago, so it's already dated. But people, through memes and through Tumblr and Instagram, are communicating visually now. So it's almost like you don't even need words, except for the occasional image macro. So I think there's a recognition that that's where social media is going, and that's where communications and marketing are going to a certain extent, is expressing yourself visually through that visual vocabulary. That's very that's very interesting. What um, in Toronto we had the uh, the Pan Am Olympics, and uh, York uh, was a venue uh, for for some of the events. Did you was there sort of a, a tie in with what was happening um, on the field, and what um, you were sort of directing uh, some of the departments to do social media wise? Oh, totally. Yeah. So York was a venue. We had the CIBC Pan Am Para Pan Am Athletic Stadium on campus, which is right next to where I work. So I was in the exclusion zone, the security zone. <laughs> so I, I had my ID and I had to present it every day. I felt very important. It was very fun. And um, so we had all kinds of athletes, um, Parapan and Pan Am athletes. Uh, and we uh, won some, some medals on campus for Canada. And there were um, some York athletes who won. So this is like a huge opportunity. I and mean, it's not like every day or every week you have athletes from all across the hemisphere come and play games in your backyard. So yeah, of course you're going to leverage that. So we were doing videos, we were doing um, thank you shout-outs to the athletes that won, counting down, recapping, because also when you create all this great content, you don't want to just use it once and throw it away. Hopefully it's got a bit of a longer tail than that. Yeah. So if you can recap, if you can do like uh, throwback Thursday, fall, um, flashback Friday for these sort of things... If you can do like you know uh, a, a photo album after the fact, um, something we do for convocation actually is you know uh, top ten uh, selfies. So <laughs> no, it's true because like this content is great. Don't yeah. just use it once. There's many different ways it can be exposed and packaged. That you can show it on different channels because somebody that's seeing it on Instagram, you know, uh, isn't necessarily the audience on Facebook. So if someone's you know like an older individual, they you can't guarantee they're going to see something on Instagram because they might not be there. So of course you're going to show it on multiple channels, give it the best chance of being seen. Mm. So we were all over that. Um, just lots of creative ways to try to leverage that. That was a huge opportunity. Nice. What's um, you know, money's is money's at a premium at these types of institutions. Um, you know, it doesn't get thrown around. You know, you're not working with the budgets. I'm sure that some of the you, your U.S. counterparts do. Um, so what's the role of of paid media or paid social media, let's say? Mm, it's important because one thing that people don't want to hear about is institutional messaging. So everyone falls into this trap no matter where you work. You think that the things that you got to say about yourself, your organization, your company are fascinating and important. And they are for you, but for an internal audience. Your customers don't care nearly so much. But occasionally you need to get some of those messages out that are not so compelling, but, you know, kind of good for you or, or we really want these messages to be heard kind of messaging. 
that's when you got to pay for it. So if you want to make sure it breaks through that sort of wall of organic content, you're going to have to turn it into an ad. You're going to have to pay for some of those eyeballs. Yeah. So there's still very much a role for that, and especially when you got like a big marketing campaign. Um, where are you going to spend your money? You know, if you're trying to reach an 18-year-old, are they really picking up the Globe and Mail every morning? Probably not. Are they tuning in the evening news? Probably not. Are they looking at their Instagram feed? Absolutely. Are they looking at Facebook? Yeah, they still are to a certain extent. Are they going on LinkedIn? Surprisingly, yeah, to research your institution. These are all places you can spend money in a wise fashion. Mm -hmm. And the return on investment just kicks traditional media to the curb. When you do the math, uh, it's so much cheaper than a regular ad buy. Um, years ago, there was a study that showed that it was actually a net loss, at least for some small businesses, to advertise in newsprint, and that mm. they were actually losing money with each ad. So I think that's probably even more applicable today. So yeah. there absolutely is a, a role for paid on social, you bet. Interesting. Um, you've, you've penned a few articles on, uh, on LinkedIn, um, and I want to talk about a couple of them. Which ones? Which ones? Um, earlier this year, this was like the day after, a couple of days after Valentine's Day. So um, I, I don't know if this was any indication of how your Valentine's Day went. But <laughs> the, the title of I the article. I can't wait, Kareem. The title of the article is Social Media Will Eat Itself. <laughs> it still is. Um, ex explain what that means. Basically, oh, that uh, there's a war for your eyeballs, and Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn are in a death lock for those eyeballs. It's a bit like Walking Dead that way, except instead of brains, it's eyeballs. And uh, they all want your attention, but you only have so much attention. So, how are you going to get that attention? By the race to the bottom in some, in some cases. This is the reason why we have... Upworthy, why we have BuzzFeed nowadays and those kind of clickbait uh, channels is because of that race to the bottom of the attention span barrel. You know that you can get clicks if you do the right things with putting up teaser content or you won't believe what happens next type content, yeah. things like that. And clicks is what drives ad revenue. So you put up not necessarily the most thoughtful content, the most fascinating, but you put up content that's going to get clicks and attention and views. And because there's a limited amount of eyeballs and attention span and hours in the day for people to spend on that, these social media keep finding ways to outcompete each other, up each their, their game versus each other, try to get more of those eyeballs. So they're sort of driving towards the bottom of that attention span, ever more clickbaity type stuff. Where does it end? I mean, are these challenges just going to keep eating each other's lunch until there's nothing left but, like, you know, 10-character-long tweets? Uh, it's madness! Where does this end? <laughs> so that was a bit what I meant by it's going to eat itself. Because, you know, we're, we're kind of consuming our attention span a bit, I think. I think that we're, we're not as able to focus as a culture as much as we were in, like, 10 or 15 years ago. It's interesting because now uh, there's been talk... so. Twitter recently, uh, it might have been last month, um, increased the number of characters for direct message. Um, I, I don't know if it's sort of open or if there's just a larger character count or character limit. And there's also been talk of uh, Twitter in, in the future, in the near future, um, doing away with their 
you know, their normal 140 character oh, yeah? uh, limit for tweets. Uh-huh. Um, so that's one. And then there's two, you know, medium just secured around uh, of funding. Um, and that has, you know, medium is, is a sort of blogging platform for those who don't know. Um, and they're not shy about, yeah, this is, you come in, you actually read content that might take a few minutes rather than a few seconds of your, of your life. Or, or of your time. So I'm curious whether or not there's actually uh, a space for this. And, and not to mention that some of the most popular podcasts out there are long-form podcasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, things like WTF with Mark Marin, uh, minimum an hour plus. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, even I, I listened to Jason Calacanis um, uh, this week in Startups, mm-hmm. minimum an hour plus. Um, where most people would tell you that no, you need to have, you know, fifteen-second videos or, or very quick, um, sort of that. Uh, I really love those uh, Al Jazeera videos, uh, AJ videos, which I think are like, maybe ninety seconds, two minutes max. Um, so I'm curious if there's actually a space for, you know, 140 character tweets, fifteen-second uh, videos. As well as long form content, I think there is a place for long form content, and you mentioned it, and it's podcasts, and that's what we're seeing is that podcasts have got a second life. So originally back in the day, it was people musing about uh, their dog, their favorite recipes, stuff like that. Now we're seeing it become a real journalistic medium in and of itself. I mean, it's starting to take off, and okay, people are less interested in reading long form content than they were in the past. I think we're seeing that, and that's kind of what I'm talking about with the attention span decline. But we're seeing that people will listen. So it's interesting that it almost feels like that era of the dawn of radio is is recreating itself online a little bit. Because originally people turned to a newspaper for news, and they read, and that was great. And then all of a sudden radio appeared in the scene, and people consumed content passively. The amount they consumed probably didn't go down. But the way they consumed it and like the passivity, the you know the activity level did. So there's an interesting sort of correlation there between things that happened 85 years ago and now. I feel so. Yeah, long form content is changing. We'll put it that way. It's it's not going up or down or dying, but I think it's shifting. And I think that's really interesting because like I won't tell you how long this was. And I went to journalism school, but I did broadcast. I did radio, and we studied documentaries and we studied some of the really interesting stuff that had been done, say, during World War II with live reportage from the scene and, like, the level of lush description around all this all this documentary was amazing. Yeah. So there's no limit to what you can do with being engaging, just using your voice and with that sort of documentary expository feel. So I think that there's a great future for podcasting. Um, for video blogging, so um, yeah, my my niece does the book junkie. She's got ten thousand followers on YouTube. Wow! Because she does uh, sort of a weekly uh, video blog podcast um, around uh, Victorian literature and other literature. So she's a PhD candidate in English at U of T, and she started this podcast with her sister, who's a graduate from Ryerson Film and TV. And their goal is to get, I think it was originally ten thousand. Now I don't know what it is, hundred thousand subscribers. So there's a niche market out there for everybody, and it feels like the niche markets are best served by those sort of dynamic uh, social media, uh, YouTube, 
um, podcasts, things like that. So there's this whole shift going on, and it's really interesting to see where that'll land. That's very interesting. Is is you know with with that in mind, um, you know I don't know if this would fall under your um, in your portfolio or not. Is is, is are these sorts of mediums something that you know York is looking at? With your leadership? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're a publicly funded university. you only got so many resources. Yeah. But um, it, was, it was months ago, one of, the peop- one of the people responsible for the sort of uh, daily newsletter at York came to me and said, you know, there's an awful lot of interesting stuff going on with podcasting. We should get on that boat. And I thought, yeah, I, I support that. Now it's just a matter of resources. <laughs> but do you have the money? Do you have the money? But we absolutely want to be on on that and we know there's an appetite for it and they mentioned some of those sort of um, celebrity type podcasts some of those higher profile ones that are around as examples of that and how we could leverage that and I'm all for that it's just that there's it's like kid in the candy store there's so many cool things you could do Periscope Meerkat Instagram Snapchat uh, Medium uh, you know podcasting video blogging and there's like way too few people to do it so yeah I kind of have to choose yeah. Unfortunately, can't do it all at once. I hear you. So let's get back to some of your articles that, you, that you're writing. Okay. Um, let's talk more about me. You <laughs> My favorite topic. You wrote this, the top, thin, top ten things to know uh, about, uh, about Twitter. Oh, wait a second. That was you. That's me. <laughs> Look at that. That was your guest post. <laughs> I'm, glad that, I'm glad that made an impression on you. Look at that. Look at all those views. That was the best post ever. Listicles. Ever. The bane of the internet. Okay, let's go back. I, I've been called that, the bane of the internet. <laughs> we just like your listening public um, to know. Actually, I'll tell you. Oh, you, you clicked on There's one there that's missing, which is people. Yeah. Now, I'm not familiar with people. Oh, boy. So this <laughs> should is, be. For those listening, it's P-E-E-P-L-E. I thought when I first read that, I go, Mark, you didn't do spell check? No, I'm much better than that. People is an app that's in production by Julia Cordray, who's uh, an entrepreneur in Calgary. And what it attempts to do, basically, it's been characterized as Yelp for people. So it was a way for profiles to be created for anyone and everyone, and then friends and neighbors, maybe even people that don't know you, I'm not sure, could rate you. So it was kind of like being a piece of meat walking Didn't down the street. they do this like, for teachers? You could do this for teachers? Oh, there's rate my teacher. There's rate my MD. There's rate my everything. Okay. It's just that it that's... It would be rate everyone. That's what people... Yeah, and okay. it wouldn't be around your you know professional capacity. It wouldn't be around, well, she's the greatest teacher ever, or like this doctor sucks because of his bedside manner. It would just be, you know, you're a great date or you're an awful person, and... It wouldn't even necessarily involve your permission. This is the scary part: is that someone could set up a profile for you without your permission, as long as they've got, I think it was like your cell number or something, to validate that they actually know who you are. They can create a profile for you, and then people can start commenting. So, like, you know, I could create a profile for Kareem Kanji and say, you know, he's the best thing since sliced bread, or the guy's like a major douchebag, and you would have no say. And originally, there was really no way that these could be taken down or disputed. They sort of backed off that since then, to the best of my knowledge. But it was just really spooky. And the internet took off. And I think it was the Washington Post I first saw it in and said, like, this, uh, this has a recipe for being a walking disaster. Because basically, like, this would open the floodgates to the potential for online bullying. You know, you set up a profile with somebody or they're there. And you just, you know, rate them like a piece of meat. Like, you know, well, this was a great ribeye steak. I give it four to five. Cream kanji, he's okay. I'll give him two. Um, frightening. 
And in an era where cyberbullying has such profile online and people are mm-hmm. so aware of it, it just seems so counterintuitive. And then people got a hold of it and were like, oh, my God, this is the worst idea ever. What was the I'm, – I'm, I'm curious. You know, what was this – so who started this again? I'm trying this to look at Julia her. Cordray, I believe, was the name. So Julia. Like, what was the reason for setting this up? I don't know because she originally started a staffing company, a recruiting, com- a recruiting company. And this was sort of, an, I guess, an outgrowth of that or a sidebar because she's an entrepreneur. But she, her company before all this went down was uh, valued at $7.6 million based on, I think, the investments that had been made, mainly through private individuals. So she had boned up or she had got people to own up $7.6 million for an app that's basically like an online version of that Christian Slater movie from like the early 90s, Heathers, where like people can just bully the crap potentially of everybody else and it's this weird pecking order and I thought is there not enough bitterness and anonymity on social media already that we need to actually encourage that and that's basically what the world thought too because they uh, just like were on the receiving end of this giant uh, machine gun of negativity saying are you crazy what are you doing and here's the fun part from a public relations point of like, view. Did people create a profile of her and start rating her? Well, the app hasn't gone live up? yet, and hopefully it never will, at least not the way it's oh, planned. Oh, so it's not a, Okay, so it's not no, up yet. No, right. she, was, she was teasing it before uh, oh. this happened. So, interesting thing. She's got, she had a Facebook page for the app, okay. and people started piling on the Facebook page saying, this is heinously stupid. Don't do it. This is terrible. You're a terrible person. So, she decided to take the action of posting what she claimed were like actually endorsement emails. So she was saying, "Well, you know, okay. I'm, I'm the focus of a shitstorm right now. What do I do? Oh, I'll take you know text from what are supposedly legitimate emails and post them so that people can see we've got supporters." And that was the worst idea ever because you're just adding fuel to the fire. My whole thesis was you should have just shut up because there was no upside to responding online. No one was going to go. Well, that's an eminently reasonable argument. I've changed my mind about your app. That would never happen. Because the app still is there. Well, the app is there, and, like, this doesn't do anything. Like, you trying to whitewash reputation with what are supposedly, you know, positive emails, but nobody has ever actually seen, is silly. So sometimes saying nothing is the best remedy of all when there is poop hitting the fan on social media or public relations. That was the whole thesis. Yeah. So I, I guess this leads to a bigger conversation or topic around social media and crisis communications. You know, what's the is, – is silence sort of the best weapon against, you know, if stuff hits the fan? Or, you know, should a company or an individual release a statement through social or, or whatnot? Or – I don't know. Mm. You know, it's it's interesting because so I bring up you remember there was this lady who went to Africa. I don't know what it was, and before she she went, she tweeted out something where if you just looked at it, it was like I'm white, I'm not going to get AIDS. Do you remember oh, that? Oh yes, and she, I and she took a don't flight. Remember who that was? And apparently, there was a backstory to why she had done that, and she actually cares a lot. And it was done. It was it was meant to sort of be a like if I tell you sort of an inside joke, that if it went public, would have a totally different meaning than if it was just a conversation between you and me, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so 
you know, a lot of things that sort of are said or, or are tweeted or are posted on social, no one ever thinks or, or very few people sort of <laughs> think about what they've put on there. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's like they're talking to themselves, but really when they press enter, really they're talking to the world. Um, so th- there seems to be a, a, a great need for crisis communications, whether it's by an individual, whether whether it's by a company. But, you know, in, in your opinion, what are sort of the the steps one should take or, you know, to either come back from something or, or to make sure that something doesn't even happen? Mm. Uh, before you do that, uh, two words, uh, Donald Trump. I, I, I think that if you want to see an example of somebody speaking without thinking and someone who should have like a pause button on their Twitter, check out Donald Trump's Twitter. Um, the simple answer, well, there isn't a simple answer, but one of the things that you should do is, uh, um, take responsibility for what you've done. So if you screwed up at a certain point, you are going to need to take responsibility and you are going to need to apologize. That doesn't have to happen right away, but you can take the time to think about it. And if you need to, if you're like a corporation, ask legal and ask your PR department, but at some time, at some point, if you've done something wrong, you're going to need to take responsibility, and that's an apology, and a heartfelt, sincere apology. There's plenty of times in business where people have made these backhanded apologies that really just self-serving. It's just, yeah, you did that because the PR department told you to, not because you're actually sincere or believe it. It's because you're doing it pro forma. Worst thing ever. It usually just blows up. Um, before you do that, you should listen to what's happening online too. So there's all kinds of software out there that allows you to listen to what's happening on social media. Radiant 6, Sysmos Heartbeat, Hootsuite, Sprout Social, Crimson Hexagon, Spread Fast, things like that. Um, some of them are cheap, some of them are expensive, but if you're serious about your reputation online, you need to be listening. So whether it's just even checking with Twitter or using one of these big dashboards, listen to what people are saying. And also listen for a while before you decide to weigh in on a conversation because there's nothing worse than just bursting into a conversation without having a clue of what is going on or what your audience thinks about you, your customers. So always listen. As in life, listen first. Um, Think about the apology and make the apology. The other thing too is if there's something that someone's saying that's manifestly untrue about the situation, like uh, oh my god, Pacific Junction Hotel, which is where we're broadcasting from, is on fire. It's okay to say, actually no, it's not on fire. There was uh, a, a kitchen fire in the back we put it out after 10 minutes, come on down and grab a beverage. That's perfectly fine. What you don't want to do is what Miss Cordray did, which is thinking that you're in control. You're not in control. The internet is in control. <laughs> so she's an entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs are very active people. And she probably thought, I need to do something. I can do something. I will do something. That's unfortunate because sometimes just being quiet is the best thing. Uh, In this case, there was probably no upside to her responding, except to say maybe something like, you know, we've heard... If I Okay, so if I was by myself in her place, I would probably say something like, I'm just speaking off the top of my head now, so don't quote me, but uh, we heard your concerns. We understand them. We're going to work to make this um, the best, uh, you know, human interface product what's uh, that we can and then she would talk hopefully about the steps she would take so we're not going to make it anonymous anymore maybe or we won't allow people to post profiles for others talk about the steps that you're going to take to make the situation better and then just sign up with uh, a thank you and another sincere sorry it can be that simple Hmm. interesting 
It's very simple. Yeah, you're right. Very simple steps. Uh, but sometimes, you know, either people don't realize it, they make it more complicated, or they just say, no, I'm not going to apologize. Yeah, and people are afraid, you know. I mean, when, when the stuff hits the fan, it's not like you're going to be completely calm. So there is a strong impulse to panic. And when you panic, you do things. And sometimes things aren't very good ideas. So take a breath. One of the things that companies tend to do, and there's sort of two stories to this or two sides to this, is getting involved in conversations that are, I don't know, unnatural or sort of saying, oh, why is that company involved in that? You know, and it could be anything from, you know, tweeting out um, during, you know, a Toronto's first foray into the playoffs in 22 years, you know, to... Um, you know, sending out a social media message uh, during uh, the Grammys to sending out a tweet on an anniversary of some sort of event, whether it's man visiting the moon or whether it is a tragedy like 9-11. What is, is there a place where it's acceptable for a, and I'm talking brands now, because I think with people, people can do whatever they want. Um, but with brands, there's sort of there seems to be rules online uh, um, of, of of where brands are allowed to go and where brands are are not allowed to go. Uh, and I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, there's ways to do that intelligently. Like, um, what was it? I think it was the Super Bowl in uh, New Orleans when the lights went out. Yes. Yeah. 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 And Oreo uh, got on it. The people make Oreos, Nabisco, I guess. I assume. Um, and they did, I think, an Instagram post or a Facebook post or both really quickly, like just snap. And it was, you know what you can enjoy in the dark? Oreos. Words to that effect. Something about like how it's the things yeah, you, you can, can do you, with the lights. You out. can still dunk in the dark. You can still dunk in the dark. Yeah. And, and it's Mon- I think they're owned by Mondelez. Mondelez? Okay. Yeah. And it was really fun, witty, and they turned it around so fast. Yeah. Somebody was on that and actually empowered to do good, fun stuff because so many times corporations get their head up their butt and think, oh, we have to get to sign off from the vice presidents of the powers that be. Sponsored a that's for kids. But these guys embraced it, and they obviously had someone who had the power to go ahead and press go on something that was fun. And kudos to them. and went around the interwebs and paid off. Then you get something like, I don't even remember the name of the designer, but I think it was uh, maybe a shoe designer or something, who actually traded off on, I think it was Human Tragedy in Syria or somewhere in the Middle East. Uh, yeah, I want to say Rolf Lauren, but I'm not really I sure. I forget. But he made some sort of off-color joke about uh, his new line of shoes and related it to some sort of like human rights disaster or a conflict in the Middle East. And people just went, did you really do that? You know, yes, that was a little spontaneous and, um, you know, a little creative and totally wrong. So it's very easy to go either way. The best thing you can do is put someone in charge who knows what they're doing and has good judgment and let them do good work. Uh, you don't need to overthink stuff. Just trust. Yeah. Interesting. Um, is it ever okay for a brand to put out a tweet on 9-11? Oh, boy. That's a tough question. Um, I can't imagine what that brand would be unless, you know, I mean, if it was if it was an observance, like, you know, you're the U.S. military or, I don't know, you're Barack Obama's Twitter account or something, that makes sense. But to try to capitalize on that. I'm sure I see it in Remembrance Day, you know, lest we forget. And, you know, X-Brand might put it out, lest we forget. 
with a yeah. copy of a you know picture of a poppy or something. Yeah, I can see it being okay for a brand to say we remember uh, you know our fallen veterans or something like that. Something very simple and very heartfelt. Um, we did it for Remembrance Day at York. We had a photo of the flag at half mask and said, uh, I think something to the effect of um, York remembers on Remembrance Day or something like that. It just dead simple, straightforward. We didn't inject the brand into it, yeah. uh, and I think that's appropriate. Just to mark a solemn occasion and say we're we're observing this because you know there there are people in any brand in any corporation. So I think that's tasteful. If you actually tried to capitalize on it to sell more stuff, whether that's the anniversary of 9-11 or Remembrance Day, that's when, you, you know, you, that would be a disaster. Um, I always see messages whenever, and, and I, I don't want to say always because, you know, tragedies don't always happen. Uh, but when they do, I've seen messages from, you know, peers uh, in, the, in, in our industry, um, you know, put out messages like, if you have any scheduled brand posts make sure to delete them mm-hmm. you know not because there, there's anything related to a tragedy and mm-hmm. what that brand might be promoting um, but I, I, I think there's more to this than just there's a black and white mm-hmm. or there's a right or there's a wrong um, you know because when you're watching TV all the commercials don't all of a sudden stop um, you know all of the bus ads you know don't go away mm-hmm. um yeah. What are your thoughts? I, I think that it's okay to, if there's something serious, like a real tragedy, uh, and it's close to home, to go quiet for a bit. Because I don't think there's any benefit to adding background noise. And it's not like people are going to think better of your marketing messages during a tragedy just because you weren't intimidated and said we're not going to stop them. I think that it's, yeah. I I would probably, if there was a tragedy close to home, I'd say everyone go quiet. Uh, if, there, if there's a situation specifically at your brand, or your company, your location, that's when you go quiet and PR does the talking. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, but like if it's if it's more diffuse than that, you just play it by ear because you know big tragedies. Yeah, you probably don't want to distract, and that's not a time when you want to be advertising. I don't think. And that's what most of what's happening with a brand or a corporation on social is. Is it's basically another form of advertising. It's marketing, right? Yeah. So. I would probably advise just holding off on stuff. Yeah. I'm sort of torn. You know, I, I understand, you know, you, you don't want to go, you know, you might want to pause something, but I'm always, uh, you know, I'm of the opinion that, you know, so the the last time I remember seeing something was uh, the, the Boston Marathon bombing. Um, and, you know, I, I remember seeing messages on, hey, make sure you pause stuff. Um, and I see other things going... Hey, I don't know why so and so just tweeted this out. You know, don't they know that there's? And I'm thinking, not that I had any, that I cared any less for for some of the people that were impacted. But I go, when you know, what's where's the line? You know, does something have to be happening across the world on the totally different side that it's okay, or does something have to be happening in your hemisphere? Or does something be ha- have to be happening in your country? Like, when is it? Because there's stuff. That I think Mark, you would agree that happens every day, mm-hmm. um, and things are close to us depending upon, you know, whether it is, you know, depends on whether the media actually reports it. Yeah. You know, 
Um, I mean, that's, yeah, we so know. conflicted about, you know, what's the actual right thing, or is there a right thing? Well, you raise a good point. Is like every day in Syria, there is, for all I know, maybe dozens of people dying in a conflict, but that hasn't stopped anybody's marketing. So yeah. it needs to be a question of is this going to be, uh, am I, the, is my audience going to be aware of this, and is this impactful to them? So, no, I mean, like, if we stopped tweeting and Instagramming and Facebooking every time there was a human tragedy, there would be no communication on social media. Yeah. So, it's really just about respect to your audience, I think. So, if, you're, if you think point. that they're going to be affected by this in some significant way, it's probably a time to pause. Um, and then pick it up again when you think that people are, I don't know, it's so nebulous, people are ready. I'm, I'll just leave yeah. it at that because... Yeah, there's there's no formula. It's just it's just good taste, I think. Um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see what people say. Like if there was, uh, I don't know, a crisis comms firm, what they would advise. But yeah, just take a pause. It's mm. there's no there's no downside to pausing. It's not like you got to meet your marketing messages, you know, every hour. True. Um, anything else you want to touch on in terms of so you know things that are are is there anything that's bugging you or anything exciting you in, in regards to um, things that are social? Yeah, there's some cool stuff happening with Facebook right now. So what? Facebook? Facebook is still around, <laughs> 1.5 billion people. Uh, and uh, Zuckerberg's doing some interesting stuff. So he has decided that he's going to, if I got this right, uh, provide free internet access to refugee camps. So I remember reading that, yeah. Yeah, so my friend Evan, uh, who got a job with uh, UN uh, High Commission on Refugees, brought that to my attention because it's going to change some stuff in the refugee camps around, I think, Africa and some other places. And another interesting thing was that uh, there was a story the other day from some uh, right-wing Republican in the U.S. saying, why do all these Syrian refugees have cell phones? They can't be that poor. That's my southern Republican accent. Um, And everyone has cell phones. Well, completely missed the point is that it's not a matter if you've got the money. It's like, this is a necessary lifeline. This, not only to the home, where for all you know, you dumbass, their husband or wife or children are living, but also it's the main way you navigate the world, especially when you're homeless. I mean, what is he going to, what is a refugee going to do? Like, go back to their apartment and pick up their landline and find out what's going on? Yeah. Yeah. Twit. So, so just, so just so that everyone understands this, um, these people don't have the latest iPhone 6S or whatever it is, you know, or the latest Galaxy, ta- whatever, right? The, the, these are, um, you know, some of them are quote-unquote smartphones. Um, other of them are feature phones. Some of them are flips. But, um, you know, I was in, in Africa as recently as this May and in, before that during um, the South African uh, World Cup. I was also in East Africa during that same time. And... Um, a cell phone is more than just a place to surf. Uh, for them, this is their life. If their their ability uh, to make money, to receive money, to pay, all takes place on mobile. They are they use um, the mobile phone way more than we do uh, when it comes to actually make th- making things happen. Um, they don't have the infrastructure for landlines. Um, they communicate uh, they make money they pay for things um, through their mobile devices mm-hmm. you know so whether someone is a refugee or not um, it, it doesn't matter this is what they th- this is this is part of that sort of um, 
I don't want to say lifestyle, but but basically that's what it is. Yeah. And even more so when you're a refugee, this is your way to navigate the political system. This is your translator. This is how you find out if you even have a wife and child back home. This is essential. This is how you navigate the world. But, you know, it's it's depressing to see people use it for cheap political gain, oh, yeah. which is what it is. But the, the where I was going with that is it's interesting that, you know, some people don't see the need for Internet access in a refugee camp because they think, well, you know, ill-fed, underclothed people. You know, they have this idea that, like, people on the brink of starvation and, like, just poor beyond belief, which isn't necessarily the case. I mean, these are people that are trying to rebuild lives, get an education so that they can have opportunities. And when did Internet become a nice-to-have? You know, compared to food and clothing, it's a nice-to-have. Compared to everything else, it's how we run the frickin' world. Yeah. So the idea that somebody could be upset or, like, not understand why Internet access is important for, say, a refugee camp is, is staggering. It's, yeah, it's, the ability it's, to communicate, the ability to to to, to do elevate themselves, yes. so you can get a degree, so that Absolutely. you can get a job in a you know a developed economy. Yeah, you know, uh, participate in, in Khan Academy or various other um, mm-hmm. uh, courses like that to, to better yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, to be able to you know, I remember Peter Gabriel uh, a number of years ago uh, had a sort of campaign where he wanted to get video cameras via like cell phones and things like that but mobile video cameras in the hands of you know thousands of people and I can't remember you know if it was refugees or or, or whatnot to just document you know what's happening to them so that people could actually see you know here's the sort of hardships or, or the successes that people are going through that you only know about through a newspaper or through the news but here's the day-to-day life of someone so these things absolutely I totally agree with you are, are, are very important. That's amazing, uh, you know, that, that a company like Facebook is doing something uh, very well, interesting. That he's got yeah. deep pockets. And also, they're, they've about saturated the market. Once you've got 1.5 billion people, it's not like you're going to look under a rock and find, like, another billion. So the marginal growth for Facebook's audience is, is just that it's marginal. So what do you do? Well, you create an audience. You know, if it's not already there, why don't you go make one? So there's business savvy behind this. It's not just purely altruistic. But that doesn't make it a bad thing. Sure. But he's, he's trying to build an audience. He's trying to bring internet to places where it doesn't exist. So whether it's a refugee camp or this um, other plan, which is to like basically, I think it's Google maybe, float huge blimps overhead so yeah. that they can broadcast internet to areas that it can't reach, is not only helpful to the world and people generally, but like is helpful to the bottom to the line. Bottom, absolutely. It doesn't have to be exclusive. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Anything else happening? One interesting thing is uh, you mentioned online courses. So I, I bought my first two online courses the other day. I oh. went on to uh, Udemy and bought yes, a yes. Uh, PMI project management course and a uh, Scrum uh, Agile coaching project course. So, uh, which is interesting you. because that is the big disruptive force to education right now is yeah. online courses, whether it's through Khan Academy, Udemy, whether it's through Coursera. Uh, all these MOOCs are yeah. still finding their way in the world, but are a huge potentially uh, competitive challenge to education. And I've I've hopped on that boat. I'm I'm now on that boat. <laughs> well, you've also taught online. Yeah, down the street from yeah. where we're broadcasting from is George Brown College in yeah. Toronto, and I've done both the uh, in class and the online. So it's it's an interesting world. Nice. Um, it's Thanksgiving weekend mm-hmm. as well. Mark, what are you thankful for? <laughs> <laughs> I'm thankful for a roof over my head, some good food, a steady job, 
especially when I see a lot of people, especially young people, struggling right now. Um, I know many of them, uh, and uh, I'm just thankful that I got a steady gig that that pays well, and that I don't have to worry about where the paycheck is coming from. That that more than anything right now, actually, because I see a lot of that still. Awesome. You? Good. Um. I'm thankful for tons of things, you know, nothing sort of special or that sort of, you know, comes out to me. You know, I'm thankful at, you know, at this point in time, um, I'm thankful that my son still allows his mom and his dad to give him a hug. That's, because I, That's gold. Because I know that, um, who knows, you know, there'll be a time where, you know, because I still remember the time where he stopped hugging me in public. You know, going to the school, it's like, Dad, you know, my friends are there. Dad, you know, Dad, come on, Dad. But, uh, you know, he still gives me hugs at home. That's so I'm, I'm thankful for that. And I think we were thankful for a team that is still in the race, still yes. in the hunt, baby. They're You're, still there. The fat lady has not sung. No, no, she yet. ain't singing. I'm, I'm going to so, strangle her before then. Yeah. But uh, thanks for coming in, man. All right, thank you. You're welcome.